bringing you the truth behind the news. Welcome to The New American. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. Thank you for joining us. It's November 27th, and I'm Steve Bonta, filling in for my very able colleague, Paul Dragu, who's still on vacation, but will be back. The discovery of a Chinese communist-tied biolab on American soil highlights the fact that America is vulnerable to pathogenic risk. Also, ex-police officer Derek Chauvin was stabbed by another inmate Friday at a federal prison in Arizona shortly after a blockbuster documentary came out debunking the establishment narrative about his case. And Venezuela is going to hold a nationwide referendum on whether to lay official claim to most of the neighboring independent country of Guyana. We have those stories coming up, plus John Birch Society CEO Emeritus Art Thompson will talk about the importance of organizing to save and restore our constitutionally protected freedoms. But first, there's a truce in Gaza, and a few of the more than 200 hostages seized by Hamas terrorists back on October 7th have been released. Last Friday, 13 Israeli women and children, along with 11 foreign citizens, mostly Thai, were let go. On Saturday evening, after hours of delays, 13 more Israelis and four Thais were released. On Sunday, yesterday, 17 more hostages, uh, 14 Israelis and three foreign nationals were released, bringing the total number of hostages released to 40 Israelis and 18 foreign nationals. Nearly all of those Thai. Now, one of the hostages released in this third round was a four-year-old girl, Abigail Moore Edan, who also holds American citizenship and was the youngest American hostage. Abigail witnessed the murder of both her parents on October 7th and endured 50 days of captivity. According to the ceasefire deal, Hamas will release 50 Israeli hostages in exchange for a four-day ceasefire, and Israel has supposedly offered to extend the ceasefire a day for every additional 10 Israelis released. In actuality, though, Israel has been releasing Hamas terrorists in exchange for securing the freedom of some of the captives. For example, 39 Palestinians were released from jail in exchange for the 14 Israelis freed on Saturday. Here's Congressman Mike Gallagher on the false moral equivalence between the Hamas terrorists and the Israelis and the danger of negotiating with terrorists. I think the broader risk is this. Well, one, if you just look at the terms of the deal, for every three terrorists that Israel is releasing, you're getting one innocent civilian released by Hamas. So Israel is releasing suicide bombers, terrorists who are stabbing Jews, and Hamas is meanwhile releasing 13-year-old girls, 9-year-old girls, reportedly some toddlers. So that just goes to show there's no moral equivalence here. We've also had past deals like this, notably a 2011 deal, whereby the current leader of Hamas in Gaza was released in return for an Israeli soldier that have come back to bite Israel. So that is the broader concern. There's no moral equivalence here, no matter how much hashtag free Palestine trends on TikTok. There's also the issue that Hamas reportedly has violated the terms of the ceasefire already. We were supposed to see the Red Cross visiting victims, for example. We haven't seen that. And then we know that Hamas is going to use these periodic releases of prisoners in order to drag out a temporary ceasefire to potentially a permanent ceasefire, which would be damaging to Israel's security. So I think we should look at this less as a diplomatic breakthrough and more as an extension of Hamas's psychological warfare designed to continue to increase the international pressure on Israel in pursuit of a permanent ceasefire. And that would be a bad outcome. 
Well, as of today, well over 100 hostages remain in Gaza, including an unknown number of American citizens. Almost all of the Israeli hostages released so far have been women and children. And as mentioned, many of those children are very, very young. And some of them have parents remaining in Hamas captivity. Here's a touching scene of the reunion of nine-year-old Ohad Munder with his father after 49 days of captivity. Yeah, so here you see him with with an Israeli soldier. Now he breaks into a run running down the hospital corridor. He sees his dad, and now they're hugging tightly. A very, very touching scene. So one more round of hostage releases is expected today before the current truce expires. And the very latest breaking news suggests that there's a likelihood that the truce will be expended at least another two days. Well, with me in the studio today, as last week, is New American Magazine Editor-in-Chief Gary Benoit, my longtime colleague, friend, and boss. And so, Gary, I mean, the first question that occurs to people when looking at a story like this is, yes, but should the Israelis, or anyone else for that matter, really negotiate with terrorists? I mean, we like to say, and the Israelis like to say from time to time, we do not negotiate with terrorists. What, what, is the, what if anything, is the propriety in doing so? Well, it's, uh, it's a very difficult question, but uh, the thing we have to recognize, number one, is that the terrorists who are being released, the, the, the prisoners who were held by Israel, uh, they can commit uh, terrorism again. And, and, of course, they're guilty. That's why they were put in prison. They were, they were uh, deemed guilty. But the hostages were completely innocent. And so we had this kind of negotiation, and you exchange hostages for terrorists, uh, doesn't that encourage, Steve, uh, the taking of more hostages? What is to prevent Hamas in the future from um, going back into Israel and taking additional uh, hostages? So uh, I think it just encourages more terrorism. But what do you think? Well, I think it's it's morally very difficult to make judgment. And, and also, I mean, we tend to assume <clears throat> that the United States has always had this policy. We don't negotiate with terrorists mm-hmm. or, or hostage takers in general. But in fact, uh, when the United States was a brand new republic, way back in the 1790s, the then constituted Barbary states of North Africa, which were Muslim, had the practice of seizing American and other foreign vessels and taking their, you know, the people on them hostage and selling them into slavery unless, unless the government paid a ransom to, to release them. Okay, so this was a common practice. Once the America became an independent country, our ships no longer enjoyed the protection of the British and the British quietly sent the signal to the Barbary pirates, as we call them now. Okay, you can go ahead. Mm-hmm. And, and they were actually state actors. I mean, they, they were connected with the, with the heads of these various Barbary states, which are now mostly Libya and Tunisia. Okay. So in any event, um, and for the first, through the 17, 1790s, we pretty much had the policy. Well, you know, we really don't want to get too involved in foreign stuff. So we'll just pay an annual amount of money uh, to these states to, you know, to in return for which they won't prey on our ships and enslave our citizens that happen to be in the area. So this, this, this has been done in the past in U.S. history. Of course, at a certain juncture, we decided we weren't going to do that anymore. And two different wars with these, with these groups ensued, and we finally got to the point where we no longer had to do that. The problem is even a relatively powerful state like the United States or Israel is in a pickle when hostages are taken. Now, the famous incident at Entebbe years ago when, it, when a plane... Uh, a passenger plane was diverted from Europe down to Uganda, uh, full of Israeli citizens, and taken hostage. The Israelis simply didn't negotiate at all. They sent a, a, right. a, a, a commando squad down there, and they set the message that, well, we don't negotiate with these guys. But, I mean, this leads to another question, 
which is, you know, what should, if any, what should the U.S. role in this be, given that an undetermined number, I think at least 10 or 12 U.S. hostages are still being held in Gaza? I mean, what, what, what should we do? A lot of people would say, well, we shouldn't get involved, foreign entanglements and all that. But on the other hand, there are a number of U.S. citizens still being held in Gaza. Well, again, I think it's a, a sticky wicket, but mm. uh, uh, I, I can't help thinking, though, Steve, that if we had a, a stronger president and also if we didn't have the interventionist foreign policy that we do have, that there'd be less terrorism today. It wouldn't disappear completely, but uh, uh, Hamas, uh, uh, chances are, would, would not be established in, in Gaza, uh, if not for the policy of Israel and, and the policy of the United States and of course, Hamas was uh, actually created uh, by uh, Israeli and U.S. foreign policy to begin with, particularly Israeli, uh, to serve as a co- counterbalance to the PLO. Mm-hmm. And of course, the PLO survived uh, where it needed supposedly a counterbalance, again, because of past foreign policy that allowed the PLO to uh, escape uh, annihilation. So we're really looking at a very difficult situation today uh, where what do you do? But it's a situation that's been brought about by past policy that if that policy did not exist, uh, the world could be very different today in the Middle East. Yeah, that's that's very true. And it's always easy to second guess the mistakes mm-hmm. of the past. That's for, for sure. So, I mean, you, you know, I think the Israelis are banking on they're going to annihilate Hamas as they did the PLO, frankly, eventually, sooner mm-hmm. one way or the other. Thanks, Gary. Well, next up, the discovery of a communist Chinese tied biolab on American soil highlights the fact that America is still vulnerable to pathogenic risk. In 1988, the John Birch Society produced a documentary so predictive, it's as though they had a time machine. Out of Control, Immigration Invasion was produced and hosted by investigative reporter William F. Jasper and looks at the growing problem of unrestricted illegal immigration that, in 1988, already saw upwards of 10 to 20 million illegal aliens within the borders of the U.S. Unknown agents from around the world using the southern border as easy entry. Certainly some are innocent families escaping hardship, but also certainly some are criminals, potentially terrorists. Is it not appropriate that there be some criteria for the entry of any sovereign nation? Why should the U.S. be different than Canada, Germany, Russia, Japan, or every other country on the planet? Out of control, immigration invasion. Watch this time capsule of prescient wisdom at thenewamerican.com slash out of control. Welcome back. Is America fundamentally vulnerable to pathogenic risk? That is a conclusion reached by the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party in its investigation of a China-tied biolab that was recently discovered in Reedley, California. That's right, Reedley, California, not Wuhan, China. On November 16th, the committee, which is chaired by Congressman Mike Gallagher, posted a press release about its findings with links to its report and a related video. The findings are shocking, yet have gotten scant attention in the major media. So let's listen to parts of the committee's video, beginning with the discovery of the illegal bio lab and what was inside. In December 2022, Code Enforcement Officer Jesslyn Harper noticed a green garden hose sticking out of the side of a warehouse in the small town of Reedley, California. The hose was a clear violation of the city's building code, so Officer Harper showed her badge and entered the warehouse. 
Inside the vast, dimly lit building, she found laboratory equipment, manufacturing devices, dangerous chemicals, and medical-grade freezers and containment units holding thousands of vials of biological substances. Some of these vials were unlabeled. Some were labeled in Mandarin. Others in a code that no one ever deciphered. Others were in English, with names of pathogens that Officer Parker did recognize, like HIV. The city also found approximately 1,000 transgenic mice, mice used for research of human disease, which biolab workers told them were, quote, genetically engineered to catch and carry the COVID-19 virus. Well, it sounds like something out of the X-Files, doesn't it? Reedley city officials tried to address the public health risk posed by the clandestine biolab and also reached out to federal agencies about their shocking discovery. But the feds displayed a shocking lack of interest. The FBI declined to investigate. The CDC refused to speak to them and, on multiple occasions, hung up on local officials mid-conversation. Finally, frustrated, city officials turned to Representative Jim Costa, their local member of Congress. With Representative Costa's help, Ridley officials finally got the CDC on site. Based solely on reading the labels, the CDC identified at least 20 potentially infectious agents, including many in risk group 2 and 3. Per the CDC, pathogens in risk group 3 are serious or lethal human diseases. Despite the admitted risks, the CDC refused to test the samples or examine the unlabeled vials containing what appeared to be pathogens or other biological samples. CD officials repeatedly requested and even offered to pay for the testing, but the CDC still refused. Bafflingly, the CDC then reached the conclusion that there was no evidence of select agents or toxins and had state and local authorities destroy all the materials pursuant to court order. City officials did comply, but in doing so, they learned even more. Along the way, local officials who had previously not thoroughly investigated several of the freezers for fear of encountering a dangerous pathogen made a shocking discovery. A freezer labeled Ebola filled with sealed silver bags consistent with how the Reedley Biolab operators stored sensitive biological materials. Ebola has a 25 to 90 percent lethality rate. The CDC did not find this freezer in its search. When confronted with this fact over email, in the absence of Ebola noted in its report, the CDC still said it was not a concern unless the packages themselves were labeled Ebola and would not merit testing before destruction of the evidence. No one will ever know how many answers were destroyed based on the CDC's inaction. The House Select Committee on the CCP stepped in to uncover as many answers as it could. Regarding the illegal biolabs connection to the People's Republic of China specifically, quote, the illegal biolab was run by a PRC citizen who was a wanted fugitive from Canada with a $330 million Canadian dollar judgment against him for stealing American intellectual property. This PRC citizen was a top official at a PRC state-controlled company and had links to military civil fusion entities. The illegal biolab received millions of dollars in unexplained payments from PRC banks while running the illegal biolab. Close quote. Just for, the, for our listeners' sake, PRC stands for People's Republic of China. This is absolutely horrifying, shocking stuff. And as with so much involved with the COVID scandals, of the ongoing COVID scandals, I should say, um, much of the evidence has been conveniently destroyed or lost. So, Gary, now that we know that there was a PRC-tied biolab in Reedley, California, could there be other such on American soil that have not yet been discovered? What think ye? Well, there's no way of answering that question for sure. 
And actually, the head of the committee that did the investigation, Mike Gallagher, he specifically was asked that question, and he also said that he doesn't know for sure. And uh, uh, nobody does, uh, except uh, obviously that the communist uh, Chinese would know. But I think it's reasonable to assume that since this lab was uh, discovered by happenstance, this illicit lab connected to the communist China, uh, that there very well could be others throughout the country. Okay, okay. So, so of course, the question that everybody wants to know, and we're going to go out right. on a limb here, but, um, I, I, you know, so in your opinion, why is it, given the the potential lethality many mm-hmm. times over, the, I mean, we're talking Ebola virus, for heaven's sakes, among other things, why does the CDC and the FBI and other relevant federal agencies not only seem completely uninterested in getting to the bottom of this, but have actively destroyed evidence and apparently are stonewalling investigations in this matter. What could be possibly be the explanation for that? Well, first of all, it's obvious that they do not want to make, they do not want to have the American people know what's going on because if they did want the American people to know, they would doggedly pursue the investigation, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so why don't they want the American people to know? And, uh, If you look at the top, it's not just uh, communist China. It's not just uh, uh, the people who are leaders in in China, uh, but it's also the global elites, including the U.S. elites, who are working together uh, in order to form their new world order. And uh, if you look specifically at the uh, the Wuhan virus or the Chinese virus, as COVID-19 is often called, uh, what you see is there was collusion uh, there is a connection between that and also the uh, U.S. government uh, providing the wherewithal and, and providing uh, the help to China to uh, uh, develop uh, to develop this virus in, in China. So there's uh, a lot going on at the top that has been kept from the uh, American people. And it fits into the, the whole conspiratorial design, uh, and there's expense, extensive evidence to show this, that you have elites uh, in various power centers throughout the world who are working together in order to uh, bring about world government. And they use as rationales or as pretext for that government crisis, crises that they manufacture, uh, crises that they uh, exaggerate, or real crises uh, in order to bring that about. And part of that includes the use of pandemics. Well, yeah, I mean, it used to be that, that we would have the same discussion similar discussions regarding secret military technology, you know, new, new, new nuclear weapons and things, and bioweapons and things like this. Um, and, and the narrative that you would always hear is that, well, you know, there are some things that are just too sensitive. The people don't need to know because if they knew just how bad things are, just how, to what ends our government has to go to, to protect us, well, you know, they wouldn't understand, hence the need for secrecy, okay? I mean, that's a rationale. Of course, you know, shows like The X-Files, you know, that, that once upon a time trafficked in this kind of mm-hmm. stuff, you know, would, would say that, that would be a repeated theme, you know, that the, the people don't deserve to know. You Surely you understand that, Mulder. And we've got the same kind of mentality, I think, here, except that, as you observe, you know, it, it's connected with this greater malign agenda that, well, just like we used to do with nuclear weapons, couple generations. Now we can brandish this new threat, invoking, of course, the COVID crisis as a pretext for more um, global governance, as it's it's called. And and the CDC is clear, and and all of the the scientists that work in the, just not in the U.S., but this vast international network of immunologists and virologists and so forth that are involved with them clearly, you know, serve that same that, that, that same agenda. They may not all be on board with the New World Order plan, but certainly it's not in their interest for this be, to be exposed. 
Thanks a lot. Hey, folks. The New American just released our latest collector's edition bookazine. It's called Self-Reliance, Foundation of Freedom. Without individual responsibility and the ability to take care of ourselves without government help, we cannot be free. This polished collector's edition includes articles on a number of topics, including the self-sufficiency of the founders, preparing for a worst-case scenario, firearm self-reliance, financial self-reliance, the importance of community, and many other things. The authors are all experts on their topics, and we encourage you to get a copy. You can order copies at thenewamerican.com shop or by calling our office at 800-727-8783. Next, ex-police officer Derek Chauvin was stabbed by another inmate Friday at a federal prison. Freedom is the cure. You're dead on. This is the largest experiment performed on human beings in the history of the world. The more you know. What they're doing is they're forcing vaccination on people. And I believe they are killing people with this vaccination. The freer you are. It's murder. They are basically murdering people in hospitals. The all-cause mortality we know is now higher in the vaccinated group than the unvaccinated group. Stay informed on the issues that affect freedom. Get a subscription to The New American today. TheNewAmerican.com Welcome back. Ex-police officer Derek Chauvin, who was convicted of second-degree unintentional murder in the death of George Floyd and sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison, was stabbed by another inmate Friday at a federal prison in Tucson, Arizona. Seriously injured, he was given life-saving measures before being taken to a hospital. The Minneapolis Attorney General's office said Saturday that it was told that Chauvin is in stable condition. Chauvin was back in the news before the stabbing occurred. A week ago, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear Chauvin's appeal of his conviction. The appeal was based on Chauvin's claim that he did not get a fair trial in Minneapolis. Chauvin is also seeking to overturn his conviction for violating Floyd's civil rights. He had pleaded guilty in the civil rights case, but is now saying he would not have done so if he had known about new evidence that has come to light indicating that Floyd died as the result of a drug overdose not as the result of Chauvin's actions. That evidence, along with other startling evidence debunking the establishment narrative surrounding the death of Floyd and the riots of 2020, is presented in a new documentary, The Fall of Minneapolis, by award-winning investigative journalist Liz Collin. Released online November 16th, the documentary garnered more than one million views on Rumble before the end of last week. The Fall of Minneapolis may be viewed for free at thefallofminneapolis.com. That's thefallofminneapolis.com. Okay, Gary. So you've seen The Fall of Minneapolis. Yes. How, how powerful is it? It is really powerful. Uh, now, I followed the, uh, followed the case with uh, Chauvin, like many Americans did. And, of course, what was happening in Minneapolis at the time with the riots and, and whatnot and I, I felt like I was pretty uh, well-informed regarding it. And, and, of course, you become informed, too, being uh, an editor. But uh, I was blown away, Steve, by the, uh, the documentary. I, I really was. Well, do you think it's coincidental that Derek Chauvin was seriously injured at this particular time? That is a very interesting question. And uh, it's, it's a question, of course, we cannot uh, answer with any kind of authority. 
But considering how powerful the documentary is, uh, a document that I believe is going to change a lot of minds and cause people to look at the Chauvin case in a very different way, uh, it is not beyond the, uh, the realm of possibility uh, that maybe this was uh, a hit job to silence him. But, but the thing is, Steve, uh, uh, in this area, as well as so many other things we cover, we cannot get ahead of the evidence. But obviously, we're going to be looking at that question very carefully, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, um, at least he wasn't suicided. We'll see. Right. Uh, we, we know people who have been. I, uh, I think it's pretty obvious that happened with uh, Epstein, for example. Yeah. Well, we're going to continue following this story as, as, as it develops. So for our last story, trouble may be brewing on the remote northern coast of South America. This coming Sunday, December 3rd, the communist dictatorship in control of Venezuela is going to hold a nationwide referendum on whether to lay official claim to most of the inde- neighboring independent country of Guyana which Venezuela has recently begun to threaten. Guyana, a former British colony, is best known to Americans for the People's Temple cult mass suicide back in uh, 1978 at a place called Jonestown, in which more than 900 cult members, including children, were forced to drink poison flavorade, not Kool-Aid, by the way, by leader Jim Jones. Today, much of Guyana is still covered with pristine rainforest, especially to the west of the Essequibo River, and is one of the world's most sparsely populated countries. However, English-speaking Guyana, which was not too long ago one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere, now has the fourth largest GDP per capita in the Americas, trailing only the United States, Canada, and the Bahamas. And its economy is experiencing one of the world's highest growth rates. This is because in 2017, an estimated 11 billion barrels of oil were discovered off the coast of Guyana. The discovery is the world's largest new oil reserve since the 1970s, and it's already being developed by international oil corporations, putting Guyana on track to become one of the world's highest per capita oil producers by 2030. This monumental find, along with Guyana's existing gold mining resources, have made the former backwater one of the world's most improved countries since 2015, according to the Human Development Index. But, unfortunately for Guyana, Its much larger and once prosperous neighbor Venezuela, also oil-rich, by the way, has been run into the ground by the horrible policies of its Marxist government and has suddenly decided that, by rights, most of its newly prosperous and free neighbor should belong to it. Venezuela has loudly denounced the development of Guyana's offshore oil fields, claiming them as its own, along with all of the territory west of the Essequibo River, which amounts to almost 75% of the country. Venezuela's claim rejects an international border arbitration in 1899 between then-British Guiana and Venezuela when a panel of five arbitrators, including two chosen by Venezuela and two by the UK, drew up the present-day border. Ignoring international condemnation, the Marxist government of Venezuela has been propagandizing its captive citizens on behalf of a five-question referendum to be voted on this Sunday. The fifth question asked citizens to approve unspecified measures to grant Venezuelan citizenship to Guianans and to, quote, unquote, incorporate the region into Venezuelan territory. Although Venezuela is claiming it has no intention to actually take the territory by force, Guiana has been watching with alarm a steady buildup of Venezuelan forces along their western border. Whether Venezuela is in fact planning to Ukrainify Guyana remains to be seen, but this is the sort of thing that autocratic governments often do to distract from the misery they create at home. All right, Gary. Well, you know, 
<clears throat> like other hardened Marxist regimes, one thinks of China particularly, Venezuela seems to have zero regard for treaties and established boundaries. And, and this is the problem. I mean, I mean, you know, we've sort of been ignoring Venezuela recently, but they, they have the very same mentality that communist governments and other similar kindred authoritarian regimes like Russia have, which is what political scientists call irredentism writ large, meaning they're forever invoking past grievances and claiming that borders are drawn wrong as an excuse for expansion, usually when they're experiencing trouble and they need a distraction for their, for their captive masses. So what do you think is likely to happen here? Well, I think, uh, I think Venezuela is going to do everything it can to uh, uh, try to get that oil. But you know what's so interesting, Steve? is uh, uh, a map that our radio audience can, cannot see, but uh, we uh, do have a map here showing Guyana and uh, showing the area uh, that is um, being claimed by Venezuela uh, and then showing the, the Caribbean to, to the north and the area where this huge uh, find is, this huge discovery of oil uh, is not north of the area that is being, uh, uh, being claimed right. by Venezuela. It's north of the other part of uh, right. Guyana yep. uh, that Venezuela is not proclaiming. So uh, how on earth are they claiming access to that oil by claiming access to this territory, which is to the, the west? Well, it's just an excuse. I mean, for similar reasons. I mean, I mean, th this is the real reason that, that China has essentially seized most of the South China Sea. They've spent most of their energy just militarizing it. Right. But they know there are oil reserves there. So that's the reason. They're basically pushing everyone out. Might makes right. You know, and I got to say, personally, I, I just have little patience for these sorts of claims. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't, I mean, every country in the world has border disputes. I mean, did you know that the United States and Canada have an active border dispute? It's a small island, which is actually off the coast of Maine called Micaiah Seal Island, and a small, even smaller island next to it, primarily known as a place where puffins breed. But it's claimed by Canada. And in fact, the Canadians actively man a single lighthouse on the island. And, but you know... And I looked, and it turns out, you know, Guyana also has a border dispute with Suriname, and Suriname, the next country, has a border dispute on, the, on its other side with French Guiana. Argentina has a border dispute with Chile. Mexico and the United States, everybody has border disputes. Right. But in the civilized world, we kind of say, yeah, well, whatever, no big deal. We'll talk about it from time to time. Things will work out. It's certainly not worth shedding blood over. And this is how authoritarian regimes differ. You know, Putin doesn't care. How many hundreds of thousands of Russians and Ukrainians have to die? He just wants to satisfy his vanity and, and whatever his objectives are in Ukraine. I'm sorry. I mean, you know, if you go back in history, somebody was always done wrong. This is also the root of the problem in the Palestinians and the Israelis. Sure. You know, and the question the, is, how far do you go back? Yeah, how far do you, you know, go let's back? Let's take slavery, for instance. It, Should people alive sure. today be held accountable for the slavery that ended in 1865? Yeah, I mean, there's no end to it. If people are not willing to forgive, forget, and move on, you know, this stuff never ends. And it's very frustrating because now we're seeing, you know, writ large, the kinds of devastating consequences that can ensue in a place like Ukraine, possibly before long in Taiwan as well and other places. Well, next up, John Birch Society CEO Emeritus Art Thompson will talk about the importance of organizing to save and restore our constitutionally protected freedoms. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence proclaims God-given rights, and we intend to protect them. 
working with people like you for over 50 years, preserving freedom and building a better tomorrow, safeguarding the Constitution by limiting government power. We are restoring liberties, educating voters, and leading the freedom movement. Join with us. United, we will defend our rights. We are all Americans. We are the John Birch Society. Welcome back, everybody. Well, with me in the studio today is Art Thompson, former CEO of the John Birch Society and all-around eminence grease here. Art <laughs> brings to the table literally decades of experience. And, you know, I mean, on this show, we talk a lot about what's going on in the world. And as if our only mission is to inform people about all the things they need to know about. And that is a part of our mission. That's an important part. But after you've been informed, you need to do something about it. We, we, the John Birch Society, our parent organization, has always been about both education and action. As we like to say, we don't want to end up being the best educated people behind accordion wire. That will avail us nothing. And art is a master of action, what people like to call activism. I mean, usually that's associated with the left, so maybe it's not a, a term we should use here. But art is, you know, I mean, sometimes we look at the political landscape and it looks hopeless. You know, we have arrayed against us this media behemoth that is resolutely hard left, does not scruple to lie and, and to shape the narrative. And, and, and it seems like we're, it's a David versus Goliath thing. And we have to find ways to make a difference and believe we can make a difference and then go out and make that difference. So Art, I'm going to turn the time over to you. How can we be more effective in actually reaching out to others and make our influence felt so that we can achieve our ultimate goal, which is to reclaim our republic and our civilization? Well, we have to organize, first of all, and out-organize the left. Now they have uh, pretty good uh, control over the media, uh, government, and, and that sort of thing. So we have to go around them. And how do you do that? Uh, you can do it as an individual, of course, and most of our members uh, reach out to friends and uh, fellow employees or, um, uh, and that sort of thing. But we can get organized in such a fashion to go around and get to opinion molders in our community. And that's done very simply by, first of all, forming a group, whether it's a chapter or an ad hoc committee uh, of one of the agendas of the John Birch Society, uh, putting together a letterhead uh, and starting to get sponsors on that letterhead and putting the positions of the individuals on that letterhead after their name if they are recognizable to the public. Uh, and so you can use that as a basis for credibility. In other words, you're just not one person. You're not just a few people getting together, but you have a group of people around you, uh, starting with 10 or more on the letterhead, uh, which establishes uh, your, you, that you are credible. And then there's another thing that you need to do uh, relative to uh you know, organizing in your local community and influencing out, getting to the influence molders, if you will, the opinion molders in your community. And that is to reach out to all the civic clubs. 
and professional organizations. Uh, the engineers have an organization and, and that sort of thing. All these b- different professions have organizations. Chamber of Commerce. Chamber of Commerce, uh, but that's not a professional thing in and of itself. Uh, but you want to go to the Chamber of Commerce, the Junior Chamber of Commerce, uh, Qantas, Rotary, Lions, all that sort of thing, and reach out to their speaker chairman. They all have speakers chairman, usually. Uh, and it's a rotating uh, thing. And so you could, may get a no uh, for coming in to talk or show a video or a PowerPoint or something uh, on a particular subject to this group. But the next person in that holds that position may say yes. So it's a matter of just trying over and over again. So you'd want to have someone in your organization who will do just that. Just go to the phone and start finding out who these people are and uh, telephoning them and asking their permission to come in and give a presentation on some subject that you want to talk about that's uh, vital at the moment, like get us out of the UN is always a standard, of course. But there are sometimes things that are pertinent to their profession, like OSHA or that sort of business, which I used to get in and talk to businesses before OSHA was an established part of government trying to get that defeated. So you can use a video, but most videos are a little too long. So what you want is to develop a, a short talk of uh, probably around 20 minutes uh, to talk to these people and and then Q&A at the end. So you need someone who is professional looking. And by the way, when you appear before these organizations, you can never overdress. Hmm. Uh, you, you can underdress, but you can never overdress. Can I just interject? Do you ever yeah. have problems with people at groups like the Kiwanis and Rotary Club? I, I, I used to be involved with Rotary Club a little bit, and, and my – uh, you, you know, or, or, or these types of groups saying, well, you know, privately we like you, but we're a non-political organization. We have people here who are both Democrats and Republicans, liberal conservatives, and we don't want to to muddy the waters. Is that is that a common reaction? Once, once in a while, uh, yes, but but a lot of times the subject that you will want to get in and talk to them about, you will find it so important that it will be important to them as well. And it's a matter of that individual on the telephone being able to convince them that they really want to have you there. And, and that's a, you can develop that over a period of time. It, it's not something that's going to give you immediate success. But the person who's doing that will gain the, the ability to be able to sell the point that, that uh, they should let you come on in. And, and there's always uh, these organizations sometimes are, are hungry for programs. You know, what are we going to have the next program and, and that sort of thing. So you can fill in, uh, in, in, a, in a vacancy, for instance, and, and that sort of thing. So at any rate, what you want to do while you're there is to also try and get business cards of the individuals in attendance, and uh, particularly if they show an interest in, in your subject more than the rest of the crowd. There will always be one or two or three, maybe five or six, who will come up and want to talk to you about it. Mm. Uh, they express a, a, an interest. So what you want to do is to try and give them your card and get theirs and then follow up. Uh, perhaps they can be sponsors. By the way, when you take literature there, some places will let you pass out literature, others won't. Mm. But don't take a whole big box of, of, uh, of a potpourri of different things. Just stick to one little thing that's easy to read, a pamphlet, 
a fold-out, something like that, uh, that we sell all this sort of thing from here at headquarters. You can get all that kind of material. Uh, and, and, uh, and that will be it. Just limit it to that. Don't get too, make it too confusing, uh, something they have to buy or something of that nature, uh, something that you can, uh, that's cheap enough that you can hand out to the individuals is mu- go, will go a lot further. Uh, and then, like I said, uh, follow up with these people and help uh, expand your base, expand your influence. And the more you do that, the more you will use these people as a conduit to everything else they're active in with that opinion that you're trying to get across, no matter what it is. And after a while, you can really build a substantial organization. Uh, like, for instance, when I had a support your local police committee at one point, I didn't put the sponsors on the left-hand column. I put them on the back. I didn't have enough room in the front. Mm. <laughs> I had about 300 sponsors. So I took the best ones. And I was always filtering out those that had less obvious influence by their position in the community and drop them off the list if there was somebody new that I needed the space for that had a higher reputation in the community. But I put them on the back in 50% uh, tone in the black, uh, gray in other words, so it didn't bleed through the letterhead. I think the problem we sometimes have is we and we assume that the only people worth recruiting are the people that are writing letters to the editor every week who are politically extremely active just like us. And, and, and you, yes. the reality is a lot of these businessmen who are very well off, they're really busy doing business. Yes. And they're not necessarily as conspicuous in, in, in political things. But, but if you get them educated to a certain point you know, and get them involved, they will – you know, they, they, they can be tremendous assets. I mean, obviously, a lot of Robert Welch's inner circle, for certainly when they John Versailles, were all prominent businessmen that he had networked with over That's the years. Correct. All right. Well, thank you so much, Art. That's sure. wish you had time for more. But anyway, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the New American Daily. Remember to visit thenewamerican.com for more truth behind the news. If you haven't already, get a subscription to the print edition so you don't miss issues like the one we just talked about. Enjoy the rest of your day and join us tomorrow for another episode.